When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello. What a pleasure to be here. This is a special live episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. This event is being recorded on Wednesday, March 2nd, and will air later as an episode of our show. My co-host Whitney Terrell is away this afternoon, so I'm flying solo, and I'm thrilled to be here with all of you via the Thummel Worlds Initiative at the University of Toronto to celebrate the release of Blue Skinned Gods. And returning to the podcast as a guest is my friend S.J. Sindhu, whose new novel has been published at just the right moment. Uh, Blue Skinned Gods follows Kalki, a blue-skinned 10-year-old boy who is an incarnation of Vishnu as he navigates life and duties in an ashram run by his demanding father, and in Thummel Nod, Kalki experiences all the trials of growing up, but as his coming of age is confined by the strictures of the ashram, he finds himself resisting the expectations of his oppressive ayah, his own followers, and even his loving amma. He dreams of a world tour, but when ashram life costs him more than he can bear, his travels take him in an unexpected direction, and he ends up considering the nature of his own belief and the possibility of breaking away. Um, I so appreciated reading this novel and also just considering it in relation to intensifying conversations about nationalism and religious movements around the world, and especially Hindu nationalism, caste, and intersectional identities in the subcontinent and the diaspora. S.J. Sindhu is an assistant professor of English at the University of Toronto Scarborough and is the author of the award-winning Marriage of a Thousand Lies, which won the Publishing Triangle Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction and the Golden Crown Literary Society Award for Debut Fiction. It was selected by the American Library Association as a Stonewall Honor Book and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award and the VCU First Novelist Award. Blue Skinned Gods is Sindhu's second novel. Sindhu, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. So I'm so excited to talk to you about this book, uh, which wrestles really deeply with religion and belief. And you've said in other interviews that you're not religious yourself, but that your family is. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about finding your way to your narrator's voice and what it was like to enter the mindset of someone whose worldview is in some ways so different from your own. It was, I mean, uh, part of my project for uh, writing this novel was to understand the religiosity and uh, of my family, the, the pull they feel toward religion um, of not just my immediate family, but also extended family and the, the Tamil community, the Tamil diaspora community in Toronto. Um, and, you know, to that project, I sort of succeeded I think um I, like it what I really found interesting was to inhabit the voice of Kalki who is who starts out extremely um centered in his own belief systems and and uh 
I found it really interesting to disrupt that belief as he got older. And that was one of my favorite parts of writing the novel was to see uh, the ways in which th his um, unshakable belief gets shaken um, and, and sort of uh, uh, dismantled over time. Um, I think, you know, part of my, um, my, my thought process in choosing a child narrator also was that um, when we are children, belief, I feel, comes really easy. And, you know, what child doesn't think that they're the center of the world? Uh, I certainly did as a kid. I, I, I thought that, you know, even though, you know, I was, I was living in Sri Lanka, there it was wartime, we were displaced and um, uh, refugees in our own country. And still, I was like, no, I am the center of everyone around me's lives. Somehow I held on to that belief. And so inhabiting Kalki in that sense was easy because I remember feeling that way as a kid um, and, and not really losing that until I was like, you know, 10-ish, um, uh, 9, 10 years old. So that's the age at which I started the novel because that's the age at which I felt like Kalki's belief could be uh, challenged. I'm so glad you talked about having a child narrator. I felt like as I was reading, I couldn't help but think of one of maybe the most famous child narrators in at least Sri Lankan Tamil diaspora fiction, R.G. Um, from Funny Boy. And there's even um, a moment when Kalki dresses in his mother's clothes, and I thought um, of R.G. and his amma. And in a, the same way that sort of RG's belief in adults is shaken. We watch Kalki begin to question certain things. And as the story continues, it becomes clear that whether or not Kalki is a god, and I won't spoil that for our listeners, certain circumstances are being manipulated to underline his divinity. Um, I would love for an entourage to, you know, follow me around and manipulate things in this fashion. I wonder if you could read a little bit from an early section of the book that gets into this like really interesting gray area where you kind of realize that things are being moved to make him look a certain way. Yes. So this is from um, a pretty early chapter, but this is right after uh, the first moment at which Kalki's belief is being challenged. The blue waters swirled. Now that I knew, I could see the little dots of indigo powder eddying on top, settling into snaking ripples. Blood thudded in my fingertips. Why is the water blue? I asked. I turned around and looked into her eyes. There's ink in there, I said. Amma remained silent, her face pained, as if I'd told her I no longer loved her. I sat on her lap, but she didn't hug me. My belly crushed itself from all sides. Amma? Someday, Kalki, she said, you'll figure this out. Some people need help believing. She looked off into the distance while she spoke, like she wasn't really seeing the tiled wall of the bathroom or the high slit window. Everyone at the ashram believes in you, but the others need convincing. There's nothing wrong in that. In the glare of the moonlight, my skin still shone blue, despite not soaking in the ink water for days. Lakshman's blue had come off with a little soap and scrubbing. Your skin is blue, she said, with or without ink. The water helps it shine. 
My body grew cold in the night air, my chest in knots. Amma was on my side. I was healing Rupa. That should have been enough proof, but I was still all jumbled up inside my head. My ears buzzed and the noise overlaid everything else, including Amma's voice and the quiet sounds of the ashram as night fell. Amma lifted up my chin. Will you get into the tub? She asked. You'll catch a cold. I climbed in. The water was warm this time as it enveloped my body. If my skin was blue anyway, there was nothing wrong with deepening the color. Amma sat and told me the story of my birth for the millionth time. The details never changed, but I listened closely, trying to ignore the ringing in my ears. You aren't just a godsend, she said when she finished. You are Vishnu himself. Don't ever doubt that. But I did doubt. The feeling sat like a worm inside me, wriggling around and making me queasy. I wanted to keep it all in, to push it down, but I couldn't. Do you still think I'm a fake? I asked Slushman. He cocked his head. I'd called him into my room and closed the door, which I never did, because Aya didn't believe in closed doors for anyone but himself. No, Lakshman said, slower than I'd liked. You're Kalki. I gripped him by the shoulders. But the bath water, what about the bath water? But your skin is blue anyway. You're blue inside and out. I sat down on my bed. There has to be a way to know for sure. No, you know. I couldn't think of how to articulate the writhing worm inside of me. To know if you're a god? Lakshman asked. I nodded. Do you feel like a god? I had my mind room full of cotton waiting to be made into light. I could meditate for hours. I had memorized large swaths of the Puranas. Was that all a god was? I don't know, I said. We can see if you can heal yourself, Lakshman said. We could cut your hand. A cut on my hand, that would be conspicuous. Aya would see, and it would be painful too. Somewhere else, I said. That night, Lakshman waited until all the adults were asleep, stole a knife from the kitchen and met me in my bathroom. It was the brightest place we knew, and the one bare bulb glowed in the darkness. We also had my kerosene lamp on hand to add to the light. Ready, Lakshman whispered. He held the knife over the skin of my right thigh. I had stripped off my Vaishti and boxers and stood naked except for the punal I wore diagonally across my chest. I closed my eyes and held them shut with my hands. Okay, I said, go. I waited, counting the seconds in my head. One, two, three. The cold metal grazed my skin and I jumped back. Sorry, sorry, I said. You have to keep still. Do it faster, faster and press harder, harder, one swoop. Lakshman took his position again. I clenched my eyes and teeth and prepared myself not to move. In the quiet, my heartbeat ricocheted in my skull. Before I was ready, pain seared across my thigh, almost like a burn. I clapped my hand over my mouth to keep from screaming. Lakshman dropped the knife with a clang. Blood dripped down my thigh. 
but it didn't look like blood. It was dark, almost black like mud. Your blood, he said, your blood isn't red. He fell backward onto the floor, crawled toward the kerosene lamp, and brought it closer to the cut, right up to the skin. No matter how much light we put on the blood, it stayed dark. The pain traveled up from the cut to my hip. I hopped up and down, biting my hand to keep from crying out. Go get water, I said. Lakshman ran to the corner where we had water in a pot and dragged it to me. He splashed water on the cut, which clanged with more pain. Dizzy, I sat on the edge of the tub. He washed the wound out with my veshti, but it kept bleeding. What are we going to do, he said. I tried to breathe through the pain. Focus. We needed to bind it. Bring me a clean veshti, I said. He went to my room and brought one back. I helped him tie it tight around my thigh where it bled through slowly, the blackness blooming like a plague. He helped me stand up and I limped back to my room. We have to clean up, I said. Just let me sit for a while. I'll do it. Lakshman pushed me gently down onto the bed and drew the covers over me. You sleep. But I have to try and heal myself. Lakshman put his hands on his hips. Your blood is black. That should be enough. I don't think regular humans have black blood and blue skin. You're a god. Now sleep. Thank you so much. I love that scene. It's so visceral. And then also full of that uncertain interiority where he's wondering who he is. And throughout the book, there are questions not only about whether Kalki's followers believe in him and his role as being the face of a certain kind of propaganda, but also whether he believes in himself and, and how. And I was thinking about how information and misinformation and propaganda spread and become entrenched, um, which I think right now, you know, we're seeing this massive spread of this all over the world. Information spreading faster than ever before, people's ability to assess information in that vast volume, maybe coming from trusted sources, that ability really varying and in some cases just flat out declining. And I wonder if you can talk about portraying people's varying levels of belief in Kalki and whether you had any models in mind as you were doing that. Um, I did have some models in mind. Um, Mostly, you know, at at the time that I was writing this, it was... uh, the right before Trump was elected and, you know, right up to the election, I was still working on this. Um, so, so I saw the ways in which misinformation was being spread, not just in a passive way where people didn't know that it was misinformation, but in a, in an active and malicious way, um, where people were taking advantage of the algorithms which were pushing certain types of information and certain types of engagement. Um, And, you know, places like Instagram where engagement was engagement, right? The algorithm doesn't differentiate between negative engagement or positive engagement. And so like on Twitter, on Facebook, all, you know, as long as there's engagement, the algorithm is going to push that content. Um, It's interesting and funny to me that Wikipedia is now like, an accurate, fairly accurate source of information, and yet 
are, uh, and but we've turned to other sources for misinformation, like our feeds. Um, our, our timelines were never meant to be uh, sources of news or information that, that's, um, you know, but that's what they're, they're being used for. So I think it's just, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. Um, I just know that, that when I wrote this book, I could not have imagined the ways in which misinformation and propaganda would have exploded, uh, since the time I finished. So I finished this book in, uh, 2019, and then, you know, COVID and all of the misinformation that, that happened with COVID, even though like, unlike an election, there was really no like prize that, that was being won. Like you could call the presidency a prize, but COVID misinformation was just misinformation for its own sake. It almost seemed like, like no one was, you know, like what could possibly be gained from uh, telling people not to get vaccinated? So it, 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 so it changed the way I feel about propaganda. I used to think that propaganda was for a specific purpose, and I think historically it has been, but I don't think that's the only way that propaganda works. I think propaganda can work for its own sake and misinformation can work for its own sake, um, which is something we've seen over the pandemic sort of develop. So I, I, I think... I think if I was writing this now, I would do it differently um, because I, I think it would be a little bit more chaotic in, in light of the pandemic. But, um, but at this time, I was really just looking at, I, was, I spent a lot of time on the internet um, looking at the ways in which the uh, Hindu right and um, the you know supporters of the BJP were brief or trying to reframe Hinduism as uh, and and even um, reframe India and South Asia in general and our history as somehow you know they were trying to Sanskritize it they were trying to erase all indi uh, indigeneity from it they were trying to sort of uh, bring all of these disparate forms of uh, belief that are regionalized into this like dominant narrative of Hinduism in the same ways that the British did. That's so interesting to think about. Some of this also, of course, has a strong relation to political leaders and, and politics, as of course the, the Hindu right does. And as we, we learn in other parts of the book that um, Kalki isn't alone in being a person perceived as a god or as, as a divinity. And that felt so familiar to me. Um, and even as you were talking before, I'm just thinking about like, I don't know, the, the kind of running joke of the family WhatsApp chat and what kind of inform information or misinformation is on there, you know, um, you know, who in COVID told me to like steam, steam, um, things or like drink hot water and like what kinds of, you know, like we could, we could trade that the, the, the COVID non, non remedies is like a whole nother episode. But, you know, I was just remembering like the conversations I'd had with elders in my own family where I'd sort of been like, why do you follow this person? why do they matter to you? You know, and I had um, an elder in my family who I was, I was sort of like, she follows Sai Baba. Sai Baba means a lot to her. And I was sort of like, can you explain this to me? Because I, I'm not tracking. I don't, I, it's clear that it's important to you, but why? And Sai Baba is just one example. I mean, there's so many others, um, so many, there's so many ashrams, so many, um, you know, there's, so many places that one can go, like where Kalki lives and lives the early part of his, li lives his life is so, it's such a familiar depiction, even that it's, 
it's he lives in a very specific place, but I also was thinking of a hundred others. And so I'm just wondering how you researched and invented this category of person and how you were thinking about it in relation to politics in an era when some populist leaders, and I'm thinking here of Modi and, and Rajapaksa and others, are deriving power from like regular people's rhetoric about their divinity. And I'm also just really curious if you've been to an ashram. Um, I have been to an ashram. It's actually in Gainesville, Florida, which is a very strange. You you would think that there's no ashrams there, but there's actually more than three. There's like a bunch. Um, there's, I don't know, Gainesville is sort of this like weirdly like Hare Krishna, Hindu spiritual sort of center um, of that region. So yes, I, I like I was definitely thinking of that ashram experience when I was constructing this one. Um, obviously, like I also did a bunch of research on specific ashrams in India, but my biggest like influence in even wanting to write about this and and starting to create the character of Kalki and this this sort of belief around him was Sai Baba. I mean, when I was this, you know, back when we were. Uh, I was like, you know, 10 years old or 12 years old. And my family was, you know, doing pujas for Murugan. I was like, okay, I can get behind this. And then all of a sudden, in when I was in probably high school, um, my parents started getting really into Sai Baba. Uh, as, and their friends were getting into Sai Baba. And then, like, all my family got into Sai Baba. And, like, some people got into, like, shirty Sai Baba. And, like, the, it, it got intense. And it's still intense. Like, there's pictures of Sai Baba all over my parents' house. Um, and there's, you know, all, I'm in Toronto. So, like, there's all these temples everywhere. And my that's where my family goes. And they try to take me there all the time. Um, and so I was really thinking about both Sai Baba and Shirdi Sai Baba as these models for how to um, do it well. I don't know, like how to get enormous amounts of people to follow you. Uh, and so like those were, so I, I researched um, sort of their lives and, and their lives versus their mythology and how it sort of, how it all came to be um, and the ways in which um, their particular uh, ashrams functioned or ashrams or, or centers of, of um, like the physical centers of belief, how they functioned, um, all the scandals surrounding these, like especially Sai Baba, but also um, other spiritual leaders and uh, how some of these like so-called miracles could be arranged for. Um, you know, I, I was really fascinated by the why of it. I didn't understand the why of it. Um, and I don't know if I, st- <laughs> I, I don't know if I do now, even after writing this book, um, I'm still sort of, uh, confused about that, but I, I, I do understand that, you know, this idea of the God King is as old as our civilizations. And we still sort of have that. We're still like, you know, in our hearts and in our minds, we're still the same. We haven't evolved, really. It's just we've gotten technology. And so now we have our technology, but we still want to, in a lot of ways, follow God Kings. And whether it's Modi or Rajpaksa, who who are fashioning themselves as these God Kings, or whether it's spiritual leaders like Sai Baba, um, it's still the same thing. It's, it's this idea that this 
It's the, you know, it's the draw populism. It's this, it's wanting to follow a single person and believe that they are going to fix all of your problems. And so um, I wanted somebody, I wanted Kelki's personality to be at odds with that, um, for him to not be uh, naturally charismatic or, um, you know, in a lot, of, in, in the same ways that a lot of these uh, figures are. Um, and to and to find that his the path forward uh, is is not easy for him. He he has to work at it, and I found that really interesting as in, in on a in a craft aspect um, to have a what is essentially a god king is supposed to be the the central figure of this movement, um, somebody who's not charismatic. Hey, it's Whitney. I'm not on this episode, but I am jumping in here real quickly to say we're going to take a break. And we'll be right back. Wait, do you remember when we started the show five years ago? I think that like one of the first things that I felt really awkward about was, I mean, who likes to listen to themselves talk? And I was like, how is my voice going to sound on air? Like, oh, God. And I th- there was that dreaded first take tape that we did. Yeah. Long since deleted. We buried in the back. Long since deleted. And I think, you know, with our background as as writers, like the, the importance of the written word is really obvious. But I think I started to really pay attention more to like how I was talking. And, you know, you gave me some great tips. But when it came to getting our voices kind of uh, show ready, I really wish I had had a real expert like the people at Such a Voice. Yeah, and I am no expert on, you know, how to do anything, uh, you know, in terms of the, the way your voice sounds on, on, on a recording for a podcast. Fortunately, you know, Such a Voice has people who are experts within that industry um, and can give you lessons on how to do all kinds of different voices, how to do audiobooks, how to do commercials, how to do animation. Um, I mean, it's just that there's so many options within that world, things that you can learn how to do at your house, sitting in your office, doing what I'm doing right now. Um, but you'll be a real voice, a real world voice actor, and you can figure out how the industry works. Yeah. And, you know, um, I did um, some lessons with such a voice. And it was so fun. It was so fun. I think that... Well, we had the we, same guy. Can we say his, his name? name? Was, it was Tim, Tim Powers. Powers. He was awesome. It. He was awesome. He was so fun. And like, also, it just was really clear. Um, like, it's very clear, like, what I should do to be better at this. And um, and he had such a range of experience. It was kind of incredible to listen to all of the stuff that he had done kind of in this field. And he was just really fun. The most interesting thing that he said that I had never thought of was that you know, he had me read a script the first time and then think about an emotional incident that happened right before it that was extremely personal to me. And he was saying, like, reading the words is not, you need to not pay attention to the words. You need to pay attention to the emotion behind the words. And, like, you could read the phone book, but with emotion, and that will connect with readers. And I just thought that was a fascinating insight. And he taught me how to do it. Yeah, I felt like at the end of it, um, I was better. I was just better at it. And... um was going to have things that I could remember so that I wouldn't like, sometimes I learn something and it kind of like falls out of my brain because the pandemic has been rough and my mind is a sieve, but he like gave it to me in these kind of like clear steps and, and just like clear things to remember and hold on to so that the next time I am doing this, I can keep that with me. And we both teach writers and we want you, we know, I always tell advise writers who are applying to MFA programs, make sure that the people who are teaching you are publishing 
you know, and Tim is a working voice actor who, you know, has been working for Disney, who's worked for Netflix. The people who are at this company really know what they're talking about. They're involved in the industry, and I think that that is crucial. So if you've been looking for a way to get into the voiceover industry, visit suchavoice.com FNF and receive a complimentary copy of Such a Voice's Must Knows of Voiceover. And if you do this, you get access to advice from professional voiceover artists in the industry to help you out. And again, these are people who are out there doing it every day, the audiobooks, narration, animation, um, working actors. And um, you just go to suchavoice.com slash FNF today, and you can see if a career in voiceover is right for you. And again, I just want to emphasize, this was super fun. It's funny because, yeah, it the way that those details accrete so that one begins to understand you sort of like, Oh wait, Kalki's and some of this is his foil Lakshman or his cousin who you mentioned in the earlier scene, right? Lakshman is things come more easily to Lakshman. Lakshman is better looking. Lakshman is more comfortable around others. Lakshman um, speaks and advocates for himself very easily. He has um, like a more natural sense of humor. And then, but, but Kalki's the one with the power. Um, and so especially like moments of upheaval, you know, should a Kalki appear, how would I, how would I resist? Um, and yet in the story, so many people do pull away in some way or another from the ashram. As the story continues, like one of the things that happens to Kalki in this community of belief is that he becomes extremely isolated and some of his friends and loved ones leave the ashram and, and he thinks that he can't go. He can't imagine another life for himself. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about why we join religious communities and also why we stay in them. And I wonder, do you think of Kalki's community as extremist or do you think about them in, in some other way? And, and how do the characters who are able to stand up to the rigidity, how did you think about why they were able to do that? I don't see his community as extremist in the same ways that I, I see other extremist movements um, in real life. But I think, you know, it's it's also important to keep in mind that extremism is always relative and it's always sort of a, you know, frog in boiling water type of situation where like, you know, it doesn't go from non-extreme to extreme overnight. It's a Either I mean, and if it does, it's it's in response to really extreme circumstances, um, and in in uh, without those circumstances, you know, the the extremism is it builds on itself, um, and so I mean, in some ways, Kalki ends up in more of an extreme uh, extremist sort of community than he did at the beginning. Like at the beginning, it's just his village and the villagers just believe that he has healing powers and then it sort of builds and as as um, his fame grows, then people come from outside. And once the Westerners start to come, then it gets more extreme, right? And that's, that's kind of, in my research, that's kind of what I've seen happen with certain, um, I guess, not going to call them cults, but um, yeah, I mean, even with cults, that's how it happens, right? At at a certain point, it's very small and sort of contained, and then at at a certain point, it breaks containment and it becomes more of a public movement. And once it does that, um, it's already built its extremity to so much that, like, in relation to 
the outside world, it seems extremist, but for people who are in it, it doesn't seem that way at all. Um, and that's what kind of what I wanted to capture in, in this is that Kalki doesn't see it as extremist until he starts to engage with the outside world and, and starts to see that there's more than what he's been told, more than what he's been able to see. And I should say that I think, I think that some of the funniest parts of the book have to do with outsiders coming to this ashram. Um, there is a character named Brad who I find hilarious. <laughs> um, Brad is Canadian. There are moments when Brad is explaining things to Kalki and I'm like, oh my God, what's happening? It's my, my childhood on the page. And of course that interest can be genuine, but it's also potentially quite profitable. And you portray Kalki's father, Aya, as driven by both profit and belief. And this is a huge part of how Hinduism is covered in Western media because it's often connected to celebrity and yoga and wellness and this array of like wellness terms that are connected to a kind of like subtly coded wealth. And so I wonder how you thought about this as industry and how you thought about writing about the money of it. I mean, there's uh, like... I would trace it all the way back to the Beatles on the counterculture movement, right? Like since then, it's there's been a spiritual industrial complex surrounding um, a lot of the spirituality of South Asia. And um, it's, I do see it as extremely profitable. And I think that even the movements that start out uh, with genuine intentions and I don't know how many of those there are, right? Um, it's hard to distinguish the genuine tension movements from um, the ones that are specifically designed to take advantage of Westerners. But at some point, like that, the the whatever intentions um, were at the beginning get eaten up by capitalist concerns. Like I think it's just capitalism ruins everything, and that's it. Also ruins spirituality by making it into a corporation that that has you know a board and like um, stocks and people that that are profiting directly off of it um, and then you know everything just sort of starts to degrade um, I think it's as soon as you introduce money into a religious exchange it starts to become uh tainted. Um, but then, you know, looking at histories of religion and organized religion, when has money not been involved? So there's also that, like, I don't think there, there have been many um, religions that have successfully avoided having money be involved because everything costs money. You have to maintain some sort of center of worship. You have to provide for the community in some way. And most, you know, and usually you get uh, donations or tithes or something from the community. And so there's are there's already a money exchange happening. Um, and, you know, living at the end of the world and late capitalism, I feel like we can't ignore that connection. And so um, I the character of Aya was meant to encapsulate that that uh that conflicting pull of both you know he actually believes he does believe in 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 many ways but that belief gets subsumed under his greed for um for more power and more wealth so i want to go back a little you were mentioning that kalki some of his belief is shaken by his engagement with 
the world beyond the ashram. And some of that is that the world beyond the ashram, like we were talking about, starts to come into the ashram. And so Kalki, who's been going along with a lot of what's been asked of him, becomes disillusioned because he realizes that some people around him have maybe not been honest with him. Maybe they're interested, like Aya and Profit or Personal Gain. And he turns to books, which are in some cases provided by visitors to the ashram, um, as a source of information, even though there are books he's not supposed to be reading. I mean, one of the first books he reads is The Awakening. Um, and I wonder if you can read a little section about this for us. Yes. Seeing Sita with Aya was one of those things that didn't fit into my 10-year-old narrative of the world. All the stories of the gods of Rama and Krishna were filled with men and women who had many lovers and sometimes many spouses, but they always loved others openly with the acceptance and permission of their wives and husbands. Amma hadn't permitted this. Aya was making a fool of her. Meanwhile, the ashram expansion bloomed as if growing from a seed. Pillars rose from the dirt, blossomed into walls, and spread over themselves to make roofs. Unlike the thatched roof of the existing hut, the new expansion had a smooth, domed roof surrounded by baked clay shingles. Aya wouldn't let any of us inside, saying it was a surprise. Aya's enthusiasm permeated every conversation about the ashram. The expansion would allow more visitors, more exposure, and would lead to fame, which would lead to more devotees, which would lead to me bettering their lives, which would lead to a spiritual world tour. I nodded along to these conversations, but deep down I wondered if the rest of the world was as wild and different from us as Sita's books and Kalyani's stories led me to believe. Could I really better the lives of people who lived so wildly and differently? What could I offer to an American who owned more than one car and went to work in a glass office building? What could I offer to a soldier? What could I offer to someone who had no spiritual beliefs? What could I offer to a person whose body and soul were in profound disagreement? A person the world hated despite their beauty. When Sita wasn't alone in her room, she was out talking to Aya and the workers. She kept her promises, or at least it seemed that way to me. Physically, she stood at a distance from Aya. She avoided his eyes and avoided being left alone in a room with him, like Amma. And Aya didn't suspect my friendship with Kalyani. Rupa, when she wasn't busy with chores, spent more and more time with the village kids who came to help build their extension. Every Friday, she dressed up in silk clothes and gold jewelry, and Aya sat her next to me, the living proof of my healing powers. I never introduced her to Kalyani because I was afraid she wouldn't like her or would be mean to her or would tell somebody about me being friends with her. I didn't know how Rupa felt about Thirunangagal, but I didn't want to take the chance. My life had torn. I wasn't the same person I had been when Lakshman was here or the same person I had been when I first made friends with Rupa. To me, the only people who saw me exactly as I was now the people who saw my sadness and isolation were Kalyani and Sita. I kept reading the books Sita gave me. Even though I couldn't stand her company anymore, I had come to need her books. Each one filled my mind with worlds and teachings beyond anything I thought I could know. I hid them well until I didn't. 
One day, Aya found me in my room, curled against the edge of the plaster wall, reading by the light of the sunset outside. I slammed the book closed and shoved it under my pillow. He narrowed his eyes at the pillow. What have you been doing in here? He asked. He stood at the edge of my bed, towering over me. I'm just... I stopped. My voice sounded small and lost. I was taking a break from homework, I said. He held out his hand. He looked at the pillow. I slid the book out and placed it in his outstretched palm. I only had a few pages left. Aya squinted at the cover. He opened the book and flipped through. It's a story, I said. A novel. He stopped flipping. He read a few lines on the page, his eyes roving downward. Who is David Copperfield? His voice threatened pain. It's just a story. Who gave this to you? I considered lying, but there was no one else to blame it on. I couldn't let Kalyani take the blame. He would send her away, and I panicked at the idea of not seeing her again. Part of me, the part that wanted Sita gone, the part that still had nightmares about seeing them kiss in the grove, knew this was my opportunity. Sita, auntie, I said. I borrowed it from her. He clutched the book hard. I'll take care of this. He paused in the doorway. Finish your homework. If you have time for nonsense stories, you have time for more homework. I waited until he left, then tiptoed down the hall, following him to the meditation room. I hid around a corner. Her body was a statue backlit by the dying sun. You can't give him these books to read, Aya said. Why not? He's a little boy. He's bored. Stories can be good for him. Aya's back tensed. I know what's good for him. His parents know what's good for him. He shook the book at her. These nonsense stories will fill his head with the wrong ideas. You're saying he shouldn't learn ideas that aren't yours, she asked. I'm a teacher. I like teaching him. Teaching him is my job, Aya said. She folded her arms and shifted her weight from one foot to another. Aya lowered his voice. You've rested at the ashram long enough, he said. Sita's face drew closed, like a curtain had fallen. She took the book from him. I'll leave if you want to get rid of me, she said. Her eyes again flicked to where I stood, hidden in the shadow of the door. I'll stop giving him any more books. I ran quietly back to my room my body a colony of ants puttering in all directions. Thank you. I feel like hypocrisy and corruption from religious leaders and the policing of thought in such spaces are so common, they're practically a cliche. And we've talked about this a little bit already, that you were mentioning researching scandals at other ashrams. And here, it's very specific. The person Kalki starts to question is Aya, who wants to police Kalki's sexuality even as he's apparently not following his own rules. But Kalki and several other characters in this book are queer and non-binary, and sexual freedom is definitely one kind of freedom Kalki is seeking. How did you think about including queer and non-binary characters in this seemingly rigid community? 
Well, I wanted to, you know, I was, okay, I'll back up. I, I was seeing all this um, chatter online um, of people, you know, sort of wanting to decolonize Hinduism and, and looking and trying to figure out what, what that looks like and what did our ancient traditions look like before, uh, before invasion. And there were all these like very simplistic sort of uh, thoughts about like, well, um, pre-colonial Hinduism was like queer and was really open and beautiful. And it was just this giant orgy um, and where everyone was included. And I was like, um, so, you know, I, I was, I was kind of working directly against that, um, that notion too, that somehow before, uh, before colonization, everything was perfect. And, you know, it was just a queer fantasy land and this sort of uh, fantastical um, reimagining of his, of our own history. I, I understand the urge for it, but I think it's damaging, just as damaging as, as what colonization has done <laughs> to our, our religious practices. Um, so I, I, I was very aware that that was a narrative that was being proposed in opposition to the sort of right wing uh, of, of sort of Brahminical, um, rigid Hinduism. And so I wanted to play with that idea. Um, how do queer people and non-binary people and trans people how can they exist within these rigid systems? And, um, and somehow, you know, we have sort of, e even, even without looking, you know, looking at the sort of fantastical notion of our history, somehow like queer people have always existed, right? In, in every society. Um, and, and I wanted that to be an aspect of Kalki's character, one, because it's one of the ways in which I could understand him. And two, because I wanted, um, I wanted a, a queer character who had a story that was bigger than his queerness. I, I think so many queer characters, their stories are only allowed to be about their queerness and about their queer pain that I wanted Kaki to just happen to be queer also. Um, and his story is not really about it, about being queer. Can you talk a little bit about a few of the queer characters? I'm thinking in particular you. Um, I really appreciate how... Right. I think the, the notion that decoloniality is opposed to self-critique, um, I think, is really problematic. And then also the notion that queerness is like something new that's so ahistorical. And so like the history of queer, like the, the sort of presence of queerness is historicized in a particular way in here. And then also um, you use the word um, and now, of course, I'm not finding the page. Thirunay Nagal um, for Kalyani. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Kalyani, um, Sunita, like a few of the other queer characters and kind of the range of, because it's such a richly populated set of characters also. Like none of them sort of stand alone, which is also great. Yeah, I wanted to have more than, you know, I didn't just want to have the one token queer character. I wanted to explore the different ways in which people could be queer. And um, I think Kalyani is, is my favorite character because she's just so wholesome and pure and and her and she's really one of the only characters early on who really understands Kalki um, and who accepts him for exactly who he is 
and doesn't expect anything of him um, beyond his friendship. And and I thought that that like having friendships like that at in your childhood can just I mean it, it leaves a deep mark of um, what it what it is like to be uh, loved unconditionally. And and once you know what that feels like, um, you you tend to seek it for the rest of your life. And I think like for for me, the Kalki's friendship with Kalyani is that like he experiences that in a single week and then, you know, seeks it later all the time. Um, and I was also, you know, at the time I was writing the the trans movement in um, both in Tamil Nadu and Sri Lanka was sort of gaining traction and um, trans people were organizing for uh, for political reasons and trying to change legislation. And I thought that that like I, I wanted to reflect that in some way. I wanted to have a character who was trans because we've always had trans people in in um, in our culture and some I, I, I think a unique aspect of um, South Asian history is that we have traditionally recognized trans people. Um, and that's not, you know, wishful thinking, it's true. And, and I wanted to acknowledge that in, um, in my writing. I think that um, the book also passes, um, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to, to coin this, but what I would deem like a racial Bechdel test in that there are people of color who have conversations with each other and the conversations are not about race and their positive interactions. And, and in one of those characters is also queer and, and, um, and non-binary. And, and I was sort of like, so I was like, look, people of color in community with each other. And, um, you know, like this doesn't all have to be viewed through this majoritarian lens. And, um, can you talk about, like, did you end up having to also, did, did you have a sensitivity reader for that? Like, how did you, once you moved beyond the world of the ashram also, like, how did you, how did you think about taking some of these principles and moving them outward? Well, once I, I felt a lot more comfortable, to be honest, outside of the world of the ashram, because that's the world I know. Um, I didn't grow up in an ashram. I didn't grow up as a child god, but I did grow up in queer community with a, a lot of people of color and, um, you know, sort of living these ad hoc bohemian lifestyles of, of um, sort of just uh, working so that you can be in community with each other and support each other and, and pursue art in its various forms. So that I was really familiar with. Um, and I, as a non-binary person, I wanted to sort of give that into the book as well. And I, to me, Kalki's a non-binary character. He just never really explores it in the book, um, but I think he will at some point in his life because I, I put a lot of that of, in myself in him. Um, but I also wanted a, a non-binary character who was you know, adamantly and vocally uh, non-binary, and I wanted Kalki to have a relationship with a character like that. Um, as a way to get him outside his comfort zones. Um, so that's, that was a large part of, of my, my thinking around that too. I think there's only, like effectively, there's only two white characters. Um, and, they're, and they're minor. Brad, the Canadian Brad. Yogi, of <laughs> I love Brad. I love Brad as well. He sort of is larger than life, um, and then, uh, and then the uh, Julie and the um, the only 
cisgender man that that Kalki has a has a relationship with. You were mentioning before, right? Uh, Kalki is Brahmin and a Vaishnavite. And at the ashram, he doesn't encounter anyone who is oppressed caste, and he doesn't encounter anyone from an oppressed caste in India. Um, he travels to the United States and has that experience. And especially given caste-critical um, activism going on now, um, efforts kind of across the country, and debates over caste inclusion in textbooks in places like California, you know, very recent news coverage um, about caste discrimination in Silicon Valley. How did you... You, in this particular way, Kalki is quite privileged. And, of course, there's the desire to be realistic. And, and maybe he, you know, right, it, it makes sense, it made sense to me that he wouldn't necessarily have interacted with someone who was cast oppressed. But then the book is so inclusive in so many other ways. Like, how did you stretch out to decide to include this, the Dalit character in a certain part of the story? strategically trying to avoid spoilers here. <laughs> I I think especially when you have a lot of caste privilege, it is really easy to never encounter somebody who's caste oppressed and um or or never never know it, right? Um you never really think about it and that's you're the unmarked um uh one with power. <laughs> you're the default to in in your own head. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I was a tricky decision. I, I resisted making him Brahmin cause I, I didn't want him to have, you know, I just, I didn't want him to have that kind of dominant, um, narrative, but, uh, when he's a young kid, it would have been the mid nineties and in the mid nineties in that political environment, I don't know if a non-Brahmin kid would have been held up as the last incarnation of Vishnu. Like, I don't think it would have sold. Um, and so he had Sri Brahman to make it make sense and make it seem plausible that um, this kind of movement would would uh, would arrange itself around him. Um, but I also knew that at some point, he's going to have to uh, come up against his privilege in many ways. And... And so he's doing, you know, he's coming up against um, class. He comes up against sexuality, um, but I did want him to come up against caste, and I and I wanted that to come very organically. And uh, and having and just having like a random Dalit character didn't make sense to me. Um, I wanted I wanted uh, uh, her to I wanted Anne to be um, someone close, someone that personally mattered to Kalki. Um, somebody who could challenge him and he has a vested interest in making her happy and having her in his life. Um, and so that's, those were all the considerations. But I, I knew um, from an early stage that, that, at least, uh, that he needed his caste privilege checked in a lot of ways. One of the things that happens with M is a conversation about um, cross-caste marriage that reminded me of um, Siddhartha and Managuru's Marrying for a Future, um, which is a terrific book where I just learned so much about or was maybe taught to recognize how my own community codes conversation about caste, that question of, you know, they're from a good family, um, et cetera. And so the fact that that conversation takes place in the diaspora 
um, in your book and not in India rang very true to me. And how did you decide to do that? Because there is in here also, right, the the blue skin gods of the title are, of course, Kalki himself, who has blue skin, who is blue, as his cousin Lakshman says, inside and out, but also um, eventually a band um, that Kalki meets in New York. I, I, you know, when I was writing, when I, when I got to that part of the book, um, I was thinking a lot about virality and, uh, you know, Instagram was blowing up and people were, uh, you know, becoming influencers, whatever that meant at the, at the time I was like, what is this? This is a thing that's happening. I, this is like, um, a movement, a, a, a paradigm shift uh, almost, especially in youth culture. And I, and and I started thinking about what Kalki's life would look like in the West if he were to live in the West um, outside of the bounds of the ashram. And of course, virality had to factor in. Like he's, you know, it, it's at a time. It was, it would be like, I don't know. Uh, it would probably be like 2014, 2015 um, when, when he uh, is 22 and he's finally on his world tour. I wanted to sort of capture the the whirlwind effect of what it means to go viral or what it means for uh, your fame to be explosive, but also very short-lived because that's the, that's kind of the world in which we live that the virality sort of blows up, but then it, then it implodes into your life as well. And you, you know, it's, it's unsustainable in a lot of ways. Um, It's unsustainable in the ways that traditional celebrity can sustain itself over decades. Like Brad Pitt has been famous for my entire life and I don't know how, um, but <laughs> we, I can't remember the last like influencer who like rose to fame really fast because then they also kind of fall um, really fast. And we're, we're, it's like, we're living in this really uh, like rapidly, uh, changing attention span when it comes to social media. So, so I wanted to capture that um, and, and think through some of what that would do to a person who has traditionally and, and for their lives been held up as this child god. And I know that we are maybe out of time, but um, I want to, before I turn this back to Bhavani, who I know has more events to tell all of you about, I just want to say thank you so much for this conversation and thank you so much to all of you for coming. I feel like I could keep talking to you about your book forever. Um, so we'll wrap up for this evening, but I will look forward to um, reading those forthcoming works. And thank you so much again. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. This show is produced by Ann Knigendorf. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel, our website with our full video and audio archive, and episodes grouped by theme for educators is at fnfpodcast.net. Thank you for listening.